the city of St. Louis, you're listening to the Don't Push Pause podcast with your hosts, Justin Johnson and Lindsay Reber. Welcome to Halloween week on the podcast. Welcome back, everybody. So we've had so much fun this month. Every October, we do uh, an extra bonus episode as well as keeping all of our movies, um, horror movie centric for the month of October. And uh, you're listening to our bonus episode. And we wanted to go, We, you know, we tr- our last two movies, we tried to do uh, episodes. We tried to do some movies that maybe haven't been talked about as much um but we're going big for our bonus episode and that's um one of the largest cult classics of of horror movie cult classics of all time and that's 1978's george a romero's dawn of the dead i gotta say george romero man that man has been with me since the very first movie i ever saw night of living dead the man's genius seems like a wonderful human being and i can't get enough of his films one of the more positive things to come out of this pandemic is the resurgence and interest in drive-in movies. You know, I've been going to drive-ins consecutively for like the last 10 years, but I've noticed uh, Night of the Living Dead is getting played in rotation quite a bit amongst all the drive-ins in the country. Um, that's really exciting to see. So that's if you are able to see that in the drive-in setting, um, please do so. It's uh, such a great time. I never get tired of that movie, and it might have been in 1968, um, and many years have have come and gone since then, but that movie still creeps me out hardcore. And you and I got to see Dawn of the Dead together on the big screen, didn't we? Like It was like the 40th anniversary uh, re-release that they did. We did. We certainly did that. A couple years back. Mm -hmm. I think that was at the Moolah, wasn't it? Yeah, the Moolah. R.I.P. to the Moolah. Yes, R.I.P. to the Moolah. So we've got a lot to talk about, a lot of ground to cover for this bonus episode. We hope you'll stay with us. We'll definitely get into a little bit of Romero's career, and then we'll dive in heavy on the pre-production and production of the, the feature film. And there's a lot there. I'm sure we will get into, as always, talking about the cast. We'll go into special effects, which are pretty fun in this movie. The tone humor that's in this and this kind of you know if you're creeped out by it some people aren't creeped out by it some people totally find this movie to be more of a comedy than a horror movie but we'll talk about that talk about the impact of this film in horror and also on the zombie genre as a whole romero did not one not two but six zombie movies over the course of his uh 40 something year career so we'll talk a little bit about uh those different uh zombie movies that were created by him I think actually, Justin, they're called the Of the Dead movies because they're all something of the dead. We'll talk about the Of the Dead movies, (laughs) all six of them. And there might be one um, that Justin and I agree is is one of our favorites that maybe might not be your favorite. That's where the controversy of our discussion will come in. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, So after our Romero talk, Dawn of the Dead talk, we'll... uh, of course, get into our picks of the week, which we've continued to keep in the horror movie genre. I decided to stay with Romero, and I went with his underseen The Dark Half from 1992. 
What an ending, that movie. Jeez Louise. It's a, it's a very engaging film. I'm glad I uh, finally sat down and watched the whole thing. I really liked it. Um, my pick of the week, I, I stayed with the, I really enjoy the zombie genre in every kind of incarnation, even really bad ones to really great ones. And I went with a movie from 1972, one that is very near and dear to my heart. And that is Bob Clark's Children Shouldn't Play With Dead Things. I'm so glad you're doing this one. I feel like ever since I've met you, this movie has come up. (laughs) Like maybe at least once a month. So I'm glad <laughs> the you... first conversation yeah. that we ever had, I was like, "Have you ever seen uh, Children Shouldn't Play with Dead Things?" <laughs> I'm glad that this is uh, finally a movie you get to talk about on the podcast. Me too. God, I think if you're if you're someone who is a movie nerd friend of mine, you know how much I love this yeah. movie. Was always we'll round things out with our Murray moment, but uh, before we get into our first clip from Dawn of the Dead, Lindsay, can you just give us a brief lowdown on? What is the general story of this movie? Of course I would. So as uh, you might expect, if you're if you're coming off of Night of the Living Dead, this is somewhat of a sequel in following this ever-growing epidemic of zombies for whatever reason. We don't even know what the reason is, but the dead are coming back and attacking, killing, turning the living. And this story specifically follows two SWAT police officers and a couple as they kind of band together as a group and take refuge and what they think is the safest place to wait out or at least hide out from the zombie apocalypse. And that is a somewhat abandoned mall. And from there, they kind of set up camp, restart kind of life, but um, find that the world outside is still encroaching upon them and they can't exactly hide out forever. I think that sums it up quite nicely. This is a really intense, you know, very enclosed movie. It gets me, uh, fills me with anxiety a little bit. It certainly does. You think that you're safe in, in a world and protected, but you can only, you know, hold out for just long enough. We'll go to a clip real quick from Dawn of the Dead. We'll be right back. We'll talk about it. Right, Dr. Foster, the public needs facts. What do you have to give us? They kill for one reason. They kill for food. They eat their victims. Do you understand that, Mr. Berman? That's what keeps them going. If we'd listen, if we dealt with this phenomenon properly, without emotion, without emotion, it wouldn't have come to this. There is a martial law state in effect in Philadelphia, as in all other major cities in the country. It's just crazy. It's completely insane. Hey, Donna, you know this guy with the balloon on the gold? And the dire phenomenon. Should we be unable to check the spread because of the emotional attitudes of the citizenry toward these issues of morality? Jim, you take it. It is the order of the OEP by command of the federal government, the President of the United States. Citizens may no longer occupy private residences, no matter how safely protected or well-stocked. Citizens will be moved in the central areas of the city. The bodies of the dead will be delivered over to specially equipped squads of the National Guard for organized disposition. Meet me on the roof at 9 o'clock. Getting out. I don't believe it. We're going to get out in the chopper. 
Stephen, we can't. We've got... It's 9 p.m. all right. Stephen, we can't. We've got to stay. We've got to nothing, Fran. We've got to survive. Somebody's got to survive. Now, you be upstairs at 9 o'clock, and don't make me come looking for you. Go ahead. We'll be off the air by midnight anyway. The emergency networks are taking over. Our responsibility is finished. So before we start up our Romero talk, I just wanted to dip back in history just a tiny bit. Um, I'm one of those people who really thought that the zombie genre started with George Romero, but I didn't realize that they had been around for quite some time, um, from the 30s to the 40s, movies like White Zombie, King of the Zombies, The Ghost Breakers, and Blood of the Zombie. A lot of these movies uh, weren't really taking the genre from like the contemporary modern lens that George A. Romero did. Um, they focused more on like voodoo folklore and like Carnival of Souls, movies that kind of played more on like mind control and like making people like zombie-esque, like they were being controlled by somebody. And Romero really kind of took that and ran with it, really changed the genre to something that we know more of now, like pretty much zombie movies post Romero's Night of the Living Dead kind of fell more into his line of like the dead returning from the grave and then like wanting and it being more of like a disease and wanting to, you know, feast on on hu live human flesh and brain. But uh, let's get into Romero here. Romero got his start in film uh, really doing like industrials, like shooting TV commercials, uh, little short pieces, uh, short films in Pittsburgh, um, and he sort of formed a pretty large friendship with people that were also doing working in in production, and f had a group of friends. You know, they formed. There was about there was ten of them total, so they made a production company called Image Ten. You know, they were helping each other out on different productions, and they all decided, you know, what they wanted to do was do a feature. And like so many independent filmmakers that make horror films, like we've talked about before, the idea to do a horror film is always enticing because they're generally the ones that can be made for very, very little money and have a very, very much larger profit. And so Romero, with his nine friends and production partners. Uh, decided to venture out and film Night of the Living Dead, which is, was a very low-budget, you know, self-financed feature film that uh, really changed, like we said, the landscape of, of zombie movies as we know it. Yeah, it sure did. And in 1968, every one of these, you know, 10 people kicked in 600 bucks each and made this movie possible. Now, they would, you know, go film for three, four days or so, and then they would, you know, go shoot a commercial, something to actually pay the bills and, like, get by. But they pretty much lived at the house where Night of the Living Dead was filmed. So when it was released, it, you know, Night of the Living Dead made a little money, but it didn't really pick up any speed until it was discovered in France. And France kind of went crazy over it, and then reviewers in the U.S. took note of that, and that's where it started becoming more of a thing and it started showing up at these midnight screenings. And so at that point, people started saying, Hey, George Romero, that sure was a creepy movie you made there. What about a sequel? And Romero was not into the idea. And like, if you think about it, we went from 68 to 78 is when the sequel Dawn of the Dead that we're talking about, it was 10 years. So he really, really resisted making a sequel. So during that time period, he wanted to venture out. He didn't want to get typecast as the zombie filmmaker. So in 71, he made a movie called uh, There's Always Vanilla. Season of the Witch came after that. And The Crazies, 
uh, was after that as well. And these were all movies that kind of dealt with creepy stuff or, you know, something of, of the like that was outside the mainstream norm. There wasn't just a, a straightforward, you know, romantic comedy or anything like that. Romero definitely was always influenced by the horror genre in one way or another, but looked at things in an off-kilter way. And after Season of the Witch, he met uh, producer Richard Rubenstein, who helped him raise money for the movie Martin, which basically was filmed right around the time that the idea for Dawn of the Dead was being born. And Martin, I don't know if you've seen that, but that is a very interesting take on the vampire genre. I really enjoyed it. It's very strange. And one of the reasons I appreciate George Romero is to look at the vampire genre the way that he does in that film. So at the same time Martin was being made, um, a friend of his actually contacted him and asked him to come tour uh, a mall in Monroeville, Pennsylvania. And, you know, you might think, why would somebody want to go tour a mall? Well, remember, in the late 70s, malls really weren't a thing, you know, that they were, especially in the 80s, 90s, what they are today. So Romero's friend, Mark Mason, asked him to come check out the mall that he's kind of the manager for the company that that owns the mall. As they're looking around, Romero starts noticing all of these people that are just joyously shopping and just participating in consumerism and loving every second of spending money. And, you know, he's thinking about this from a, a whole other perspective, just like an outsider perspective. And during their time walking around, his friend, you know, also shows him these secret corridors that you could basically hide out, like what we see in Dawn of the Dead. And his friend says hiding out in a place like this during a nuclear attack or something like that would be a perfect place to be safe. And Romero thinks to himself, hmm, I wonder about a zombie apocalypse. So thus the idea for Dawn of the Dead was born when he gets to see kind of the behind the scenes, the skeleton, the idea of what is behind them all. And round about the same time, Italian director Dario Argento contacts him and says, hey, I really think you should um, consider doing a sequel. There might be a little bit of, you know, interest in doing that. I've heard that maybe you've thought about doing it. It's been long enough. What do you think about that? And Romero says, funny you bring that up. I actually have an idea. And this is kind of what I'm thinking about. And Argento says, perfect. Why don't you come on out to Rome and write that script? And I think Romero at first was like, no, 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 that's okay. And Argento was super pushing him, you know, to to come out and be removed out of his normal situation and just go out there for a few weeks and bang out this script. And he did like three and a half weeks. He and his wife, Chris, at the time, go out to Rome he comes up with this idea that Chris thinks is completely crazy and, you know, thinks, who do, who do you think you are making like a big movie like this? What do you, you think you got a huge budget? So Argento agrees to help with financing along with private backers that Romero and Rubenstein are able to get on their side. Um, Argento agrees to help in that as long as he can have some type of control over international distribution. And Romero thinks that that's a great deal, and it totally is. So that brings us up to actually being able to make this movie happen and uh, something that I think Romero wasn't thinking was going to happen as quickly as it did. Yeah, it's, it's pretty amazing how quickly uh, they went into production after his meeting with Argento in Rome. 
And I think it's really great that Romero decided to film in Pittsburgh, you know, at the mall that he went to actually look at to that sort of inspired the story and, you know, used local crew and, and made this whole movie with a bigger budget, but guerrilla style in the same sort of way that he did the original Night of the Living Dead. And when it comes down to it, I think Romero, just being the type of filmmaker that he is, he's always going to go back to his friends and people that he's worked with and really is responsible for so many people in Pittsburgh getting into Hollywood and starting their careers in the film industry. I think the fact that they, you know, they're not filmed in sets, that they're actually in the mall, that this movie feels very, it has that gritty, realistic feel that 70s movies generally tend to have because they're not filmed on sets and they're, you know, they're almost like anti-Hollywood of the 40s and 50s where everything was so staged and so perfectly lit and, you know, you didn't really see a lot of, like, natural light. And I really like the way this movie looks and feels especially like scenes where like the bikers come in like it's so raw (laughs) looking and loud i mean it just you know it feels like they really have these bikers like driving their motorcycles through the mall like when they're driving the car through the mall everything just feels maybe rough around the edges at times but overall like i get a sense that i'm really there in the mall with the you know these characters in such a great setting too they were still pretty new with american consumerism and which is why i think you know we get that sort of like satirizing of early american you know consumerism of like let's all go to the mall and just buy stuff and like not (laughs) think about anything and just shamelessly spend money on stuff that we don't really need yeah, it's very true. And those those ideas were completely underneath this movie. Going back to what you said before about getting the folks involved that he did, one thing, I don't know, Justin, do you feel like the spirit behind this movie? I mean, I know just from hearing interviews and everything that that they, you know, everyone's very young and dedicated, definitely a step above the guerrilla style, like for real guerrilla style, like of Night of the Living Dead, but it feels so innocent in some yeah. ways that like how everyone was able to come together. And it seems like, I mean, knowing that Romero is someone that is very passive, he, you know, doesn't like conflict. He really appreciates collaboration with a lot of people. And you can really feel that spirit in in this movie, you know? And I, I think that that's, again, like we were saying, like using his friends, bringing in Tom Savini, who he'd known forever um, to do, not only stunts and acting, but also the incredible special effects in this movie, you get this sense of supreme dedication by everyone, whether it is knowing that all of the actors that are that are playing zombies, like hundreds of people, are all locals. He had built such a like a decade of being a local guy um, and somewhat of a legend because, you know, he was successfully able to make four features in his home city. And most of the ones he made after Night of Living Dead that you mentioned, they weren't wildly successful, but, you know, people knew him as a guy who is going to get stuff done. You know, he's he's going to write a script and that movie is going to get made and it's going to go in production. So people had a lot of faith in him. And in every interview I've seen with George Romero, he just seems so dang lovable and like collaborative and mm-hmm. doesn't you know, seems very free of ego, though he certainly knows, you know, what he wants and he knows what works and doesn't work, but he doesn't bring any ego to his productions. And when you work that way, you do have people that can trust you, but then they are supremely dedicated and they know that they're working on a a small budget and they know that they're trying to get the most bang for their bucks. 
Um, but I think also too, because he was so known in his town, he probably was able to get stuff there that he never would have been able to get if they shot this production in LA, you know, like access to an entire mall that's like open during the daytime. (laughs) I mean, it seems insane to me that they're like shooting in the evenings and then like cleaning up just enough so people can come shop during the daytime. (laughs) And, you know, with again, like with the mall too, like that's a huge thing. And also there's a part before we even get to the mall where we have all of these national guards and, and cops and a bunch of, I mean, these are obviously locals. Yeah, sure. They're actors, but I mean, it's a, it's a bunch of random people and all of these national guard and cops that we see, um, this was straight up just asking, like they were filming like in, in this area where one of the production coordinators, Zelda Clinton, she knew that this was in the area and just went up and knocked on their door and was like, Hey, you guys know George Romero, right? He's local director. And yeah, everybody knows who he is. Sure. And she just says, we're doing another dead movie. Can the National Guard, can the local National Guard be involved in, you know, a scene or two? And without even hesitation, they were like, yeah, sure. No, no big. So all of that was just, those are real, real military folks. And I mean, that that just by itself shows the dedication, gutsiness, and also kind of a fly by the seat of your pants mentality behind this movie that every as long as everyone's willing to take risks and work together, um, that idea of community uh, was really um, the, the base of Dawn of the Dead. And getting into the script a little bit, kind of what Romero brought to this movie, which I think he brought to Night of the Living Dead as well, is this sense of like unity amongst characters, even though they are kind of fighting each other night of the living dead. And that's like the, the, the main focus of the story. I like that for Dawn of the dead, Romero didn't say, okay, I'm just going to make this like bigger budgeted color version, carbon copy of night of the living dead. He decided to use that idea of unity amongst characters, but have these characters work as a team through the whole movie where they're not like banging against each other you know, trying to like make a decision on what they need to do. And then also too, it's a bigger piece of what's happening with this zombie apocalypse. Like it's not, it's not necessarily a continuation of any of the characters from the original Night of Living Dead, but it is a bigger scope. And we also, I love that we're taken in from like their journalist side of like the media side of like, they know more about what's going on and they're reporting from inside a room in the beginning. And we're getting a little bit more about how these like neighborhoods are functioning and how people are dealing with the dead and they're you know this is early on in this not everybody has all the information some people are smarter than others and and some people are are more uh, brutal than others and some people are still trying to hang on to their loved ones that are now undead and man he packs a lot into like the first like half hour of this movie before we even arrive at the mall and in a sense the beginning of dawn of the dead feels like the ending of Night of the Living Dead, or that's where it leaves off, even though it was 10 years prior. And the idea of the media involvement, which also happens in Night of the Living Dead uh, and starts off with a bang in the beginning of Dawn, I can't help but feel that has something to do with George Romero's beginnings of being of being the kid that was delivering uh, newsreels, you know, to, like to different yeah. TV stations and like learning how to edit film. Uh, by by watching these, uh, you know, guys that were splicing together newsreels. And also that idea, I mean, the whole idea of media is one theme throughout his films, especially the first two, I would say the, the strongest. And the idea behind using the media 
being that he sees how, you know, the media is going to report to you the immediate things that we know that are happening and kind of create this panic. And I'm not saying that that's not warranted, but that's also like his background. That's where he knows that's how the media works. And we see how that influences society, influences people and how they deal with uh, a zombie apocalypse. And that by itself is the idea behind all of these of the dead movies are, is the idea of how do you react to a zombie apocalypse? In man, doesn't this movie have such like an odd way in which it's structured? Because it almost feels like there's an extra act in this movie because the, you know, the, yeah. like we said, it's, it's 30 minutes before they get to the mall where we're kind of like really establishing how much bigger this zombie thing is. You know, it's so much more vast than it was in Night of the Living Dead. But then, you know, we get this section where they're at the mall and, and they're, tr- you know, trying to get their wits about them and, and get settled. But then there's this very long sequence where they're kind of living there and they're kind of living in this sort of like their own little bubble in which, you know, I think is like sort of making fun of like the consumerism of people are happy and they're not worried about what's going on outside their door you know, people dying in the streets, anything as long as their house and everything is like cozy and comfortable and they've got everything they need, which is, you know, as relevant today again as it was four years ago. But it's interesting to me that he decided to say, okay, I'm going to spend like a good hour kind of setting up the characters, having them hang out, you know, having them get to know each other, having them have fun, you know, because the movie does kind of get relaxed. It gets it gets a little goofy. It gets a little jovial. And in between scenes of them, you know, trying to fight off zombies that get into the mall, they're kind of hanging out. And it's like a hangout movie for a while. And I, I really appreciate about that because it, it, that is very 70s. You know, it's something that you don't see too often. And, and now when you see it, it almost like, you know, I think people perceive it as, as pretentious. But I really think it works in this movie in you know, this is a long film. You know, it's not a, it's not a 90-minute horror film. This thing clocks in at like two hours, 10 minutes. Yeah, so it's it's pretty meaty. But I think that uh, it pays off because you do get to know these characters. And like any good horror movie, once you get to know a character and you really like that character, you don't want to see that character die. So it ups the ante and it does make it more intense. And you you do get more connected to the movie and, you know, you're, you're rooting for characters. You sure are rooting for these characters. And even though Romero seems like he's more interested in the concept or multiple concepts behind what's being said in Dawn of the Dead, you do care about the characters. Um, the, the you know idea that we're in this controlled world, but we're ignoring the chaos outside and just pretending like it's not there, this respond or fail uh, idea of, of what is you know human behavior, how do people react... And in, I think in more contemporary horror movies, we have a lot of infighting and a lot of struggles. And I mean, hell, even in Day of the Dead, you know, there, there's more of that. But this idea of ignoring the problem or an in, inability to organize, these are, these are ideas that do come up in this film. But with this core group of four, it's so refreshing. And it's funny to say refreshing with a movie that predates a lot of movies where this concept isn't a thing anymore, where you have four people that are getting along, but they're all very distinct persons. Personalities, And while all of these characters have individual personalities, um, this is a, a movie that is very much a reflection of society. 
And it's not to say that, you know, movies that came after it, it wasn't necessarily a reflection of society, but this, I think, is kind of regarded as the zombie movie. Like, when you think about a zombie apocalypse, this this is the one that influenced so many ones to come after it, and it's been widely imitated in, in all of the years subsequently. Yeah, and several other things, too. I think this movie really established the idea of having, like, a team effort in a horror movie. Because and and not not that a lot of movies use that formula because general generally horror movies it's like one person is is fighting a killer or some entity and trying to convince other characters that this thing exists you know or mm-hmm. that they need help whereas I like the idea of Romero's setup here where people are well informed and they're functioning as a group. And everybody has their own subtle strengths and weaknesses, you know, and and it's not like written on the wall for you. You know, it's not like a guy, we see that he can crush beer cans on his head in the first five minutes of the movie. And then it turns out they need someone to crush beer cans to like, you know, get through a a door or something, you know, it's just, things are very subtle in this movie. And you see the characters have to like trust each other. And and there is that push and pull. And I think that's another thing that makes it the movie a little more rich and does make it more entertaining because again, like you said, as a society, everything, anytime you have to do a group project or like, you know, your first day on a job, or if it's like a, a a project that you have to do with your job where you're working with three or four other people, immediately all of those things like get laid out, you know, it's just like, who's the strength person? Who's the person can do this? Who's the organizer? Who's going to just follow orders? And all of these like societal ideas like come out in people who are followers and people who are leaders and people who have ego and people who are passive and all that comes out amongst like a group setting where you have to work together to, to do an end goal. And I think, Romero like kind of jabs at that throughout the movie, you know, of like these people trying to work together and what they need to do and and what their strengths are. And I I, I enjoy that because to me it, it it makes it more relatable, you know. And it, and again it it gives me that same anxiety of like you know trying to work within a big group and and uh, you know hope you're not the one that like screws it up for everybody and they all die. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And we'll get more into the characters in discussion too, but I do really enjoy watching this group before in this kind of consumer paradise, hedonistic like lifestyle. The humor in that, and then also that being juxtaposed with life or death situations and dealing with it in a very realistic manner. Like if I if I could imagine myself in a zombie apocalypse in the middle of them all. For some reason, I don't know. I mean, this feel like how they deal with it seems very real. And I don't know. I don't know if that's just the naturally occurring, you know, development of the characters or that I I did learn that all, all of these actors like kind of took on the personalities of their characters. So it might have just become innate almost, but it really feels so natural. Like even from random falls that happen or getting stuck in something it just there's something about this movie that i think what makes it even more eerie is is that i believe it well and i I also too like romero's idea of like what zombies are and like how they exist in this society and how Mm -hmm. they're a brain dead version of of a person walking around and and how you know we can see how 
brainless society can be at times and kind of just like, oh, kind of stumble through life and just like want to go to the next thing and, and we'll, let's eat, let's do this, let's do this now, let's, <laughs> you know, and, and I, I like that his representation of that through zombies and also making them, you know, sort of like lumbering and grotesquely eating like warm human flesh and like <laughs> pulling intestines out. I mean, the sort of like really animalistic way that that they function and also though they also work as a group in a way you know to like get a door down or like you know they all kind of like descend onto one person you know that's something that was replicated times and times again you know in other zombie pictures that weren't Romero and uh you know we'll get into more of the effects but I do like the representation of like the zombie in his universe um I'll get into later how you know I do like the fast moving modern zombies, but I do think that this was a good base of, of what a zombie is and how they function and how they move and what they eat and what the parameters are on how you kill a zombie. And I think that he did it in an effective way where we didn't have the whole scene where someone sits down and is like, the only way you can kill him was with a gun through a bullet through the head. You know, there's none of that <laughs> stuff. It's so it, you know, it's again, it's, it's subtly laid out through the, the beginning of the movie. I think this is where you and I do disagree because I I prefer the old school lumbering zombie because there's there's something that's way more terrifying to me than like if I have if I have a zombie running at me and in like a crazy animalistic way, I, it's going to be over real quick, right? But if my if my legs trapped in a door and that thing's taken eight years to walk towards me. And I know that impending doom, I'm going to have my guts ripped out. That is way more terrifying to me. And even with night of the living dead, as with dawn of the dead, the way that Romero chooses certain shot angles and not necessarily quick camera edits, but like a lot of different angles and cuts, he can make a slow moving zombie seem even more terrifying and intrusive than something that's speedily running at you. And it's through this idea of creating energy through, you know, moving the camera or just constant changing of uh, going from an extreme close up of one thing to another to something that's off putting. And the whole time while he's shooting, he's, you know, he's got these ideas in his head. That's another quick thing that that should be said this is in 77 78 this wasn't a time when you could immediately look at what you're shooting like he couldn't see the dailies every day it took like three or four days before he could see what he shot in in the days previously so he had to trust that he knew that all everything that he had shot worked out and I know that there were there were some things that were kind of split up I know that there was a time when he kind of edited the first half of the movie together before they or after they had uh, gotten to the mall there was Christmas time and they had to stop production for three weeks and so he had a good chunk of the movie edited beforehand but still if you don't know what you're working with you've really got to have the vision in your head already there yeah and I think he had did a lot of coverage too so where he knew if he needed to cut out of a sequence he had all these options of cutting the zombies doing different things or coming toward the camera because there's so many things going on at once in this movie he was able to have better options by doing lots of coverage on on just shots of the zombies doing their thing getting extras to kind of move around and create their own personalities with their zombies. And again, going back to the idea of working with your friends and trusting the people that you work with, if you trust the people that you've worked with before and your friends, then you're going to trust that 
the product that came out is going to work because you've worked with them before. Absolutely. Well, that's a good place to stop there. We'll go to a clip of those zombies we've been talking about here for a while. Uh, When we come back, we'll talk about the cast and characters of this film. We'll also talk about how those characters were a little bit different uh, amongst the horror genre at the time, the music, the release, the promotion, the success. We'll talk about the effects. We'll talk about Romero's other contributions to the zombie genre, as well as that 2004 Dawn of the Dead remake. So we'll be right back. You're still here. They're after us. They know we're still in here. They're after the place. They don't know why. They just remember. Remember that they want to be in here. What the hell are they? They're us, that's all. There's no more room in hell. What? Something my granddaddy used to tell us. You know Makumbo? Voodoo. Granddad was a priest in Trinidad. Used to tell us, when there's no more room in hell, the dead will walk the earth. So Dawn of the Dead, there's a lot of extras and stuff in this movie, but it's really um, insulated. Like, there's only four main people for the majority of the movie that are hanging out. And I really like that about it. it. You get to know the characters. There are not so many people that are getting picked off every like 10 minutes. They're there for the the majority of the movie. And those four characters, uh, there's David Emge, who plays Steven, also known AKA Flyboy. Uh, Ken Foray, who plays Peter, one of the squat teams. Uh, his friend and coworker is uh, Scott Reiniger, who plays Roger. And then there's Galen Ross, who plays Francine, who works at the station with uh, the David Emge character. They're, in a relationship, he she works for the station behind the scenes, and then he flies the helicopter that the new station uses. And there's really not too much clashing. You know, they, they kind of work together pretty quickly as a team and kind of bond pretty quickly. You know, there's a tiny bit of, uh, I think, friction between uh, Ken Foray's character and David Emge because there's that, you know, machoism going on where he doesn't think he's worthy, but then we come to, you know, they all come to realize it's like, this guy is the only one who knows how to pilot this helicopter. So if they're going to fly out of here to another place, if the mall gets too crazy with these zombies, you know, he's the one that's going to be able to get them out. So he, you know, turns out to be a lot more valuable than they think in the beginning. And one little thing that comes up as far as that helicopter issue is uh, the Galen Ross character of Francine. You know, we're used to seeing in horror movies almost like the the Barbara character in, in Night of the Living Dead, this like passive victim that's always screaming and that typical female character. And Galen Ross didn't want to play this character like that. And she even said to Romero when he said, I'm going to need you to scream in this in this scene, one of the um, beginning scenes at uh, at the airport. And she said, look, I'm not going to scream. I'm not going to be that person. And she kind of like turned Romero onto the idea of like, hey, she can be one of the one of the quote unquote guys too." with that character. One thing I love about her, and it turns out to be the saving grace at the end of the film, she learns how to fly the helicopter. And th- that, uh, it's a little, and I don't think we get any indication that that's any foreshadowing, that that's going to be what saves them in the end, but it is her taking charge when all of these guys are saying, you're staying behind because you're the pregnant woman of all of us and we don't want to get you in harm's way or whatever, but she's kind of the one that saves the day at the end. 
and I, and I like that she, you know, is pregnant and that's addressed early on. She's like, don't start treating me different. You know, we got to function as a team. And mm-hmm. I like that things are stated right up front and it doesn't, it's not this like continuing, continuous argument and that the guys who are more macho aren't like, Oh man, this woman's talking to us. Like what? You know, there's every, <laughs> you know, there's like this respect and it's like, they have like an adult conversation, um, yeah. And it's kind of refreshing, you know, because I think it, you know, modern times, like there'd be a whole different goofy conversation or argument that would happen. And I just liked that it's addressed. And then that's the, you know, the rest of the movie they're working together. Ken Foray has had a huge career, but here he's like centerpiece, seemingly seems to be the person in charge. You know, people are listening to him from the get go and also doesn't sacrifice himself for a white character, you know, which is something that a lot of times if there's a a black character in a horror movie, they sacrifice themselves so that the white person can live. Not that that's like the intention, I think, of the movie a lot of times. It's just that's how it has played out historically in horror films. And this is one that, you know, early on kind of broke that uh, trend, especially for, you know, 70s horror it certainly did. And also with the Ken Fourier character and Kevin Reinecker, they have this this friendship in, in Dawn of the Dead where it's the big guy and the little guy type of thing. And there is this Ken Fourier is almost the big brother to Kevin Reinecker, who's kind of he, he's a loose cannon. He and and we see how that, you know, literally I was going to say literally bites him in the ass, but it bites him on the arm and the leg by being that guy that's not really in control of himself like Ken Foray's Peter character. Romero doesn't throw characters away like other horror movies do. Because I think horror movies in general can a lot of times be rough on characters. Like you you just get the chance to like feel a character out on screen and then they get, you know, killed. And Romero, even though the uh, Roger character, the co-worker SWAT team member to Ken Foray, once he's injured and bitten, you know, he still helps out even though they're like pushing him in a cart and he can only, he can't walk anymore, but he's still helping out until he starts getting sick. Of course, I love that he's still a pretty huge part of the the plot for a while, you know, and then we also, his character is used to show us that if you're just bitten, it, it it's not like you turn immediately in 24 hours. Um, so it makes, because he's hanging out with them more, the scene where, you know, he has to die makes it even more, all the more traumatic, you know, for the audience. And because, you know, you've learned to care about him and he's part of their team. I think it was really smart way to make the characters not just fleshed out, but they last throughout almost the whole film without getting killed off. And I think we're not expecting Scott Reiniger's Roger to, get bitten and turn, you know, it is further into the movie, but we're not really expecting him to be the first one of the group that gets it, or at least I'm not, I don't expect that. And I certainly out of everyone in, in this group who ends up being the last two, last two people standing, I don't think that it's something that you can predict with Dawn of the Dead. And I don't know about you, Justin, but the last two characters that are standing in this movie, the first time I watched this, I wasn't expecting it to be them. I wasn't expecting it to be uh, to be Francine and Peter, you know. It's not a movie that kind of sets up like, 
who's going to die or who's going to get it because they all seem to be pretty practical about the situation minus when you know there's just the long sequence where they're just kind of hanging out and living there and i don't know that's being unpractical they're just they're trying to kill time because they're they're stuck there and they're hoping that they're going to get some kind of new some kind of new news but i do also like that these characters kind of make a plan and they follow it and nothing that they really do in the movie seems wildly questionable you know you, there's there's other movies where they're like okay here's what we're gonna do and it just seems impossible like a mission impossible type movie but you're like you know they're gonna pull that off but in a survivalist type movie like this you kind of want the characters to not go too far out of like what you would think you would do in that situation and nothing that they do seems too like wildly risky or like questionable like it seems kind of logical and like practical and like you know, this will be the best move. Stay in this side of the mall. We're going to go down here for supplies in this side. You know, here's an area that doesn't have as many zombies, so we'll, we'll secure that off, and then we'll, we'll enter through an area that has fewer zombies, and we'll kill the few that we have to. They seem very logical, and I love that because a lot of times within the horror genre, and, I, you know, there's so many logical movies that I just love that are just so ridiculous and crazy, but I enjoy movies in the horror genre that seem grounded and intelligent like this one is and that's again what makes me as an audience like care about these characters and when steven flyboy gets it to me in the elevator that that is like that's one of the roughest death scenes for like you know a character that you like getting killed yeah i do have to give him a good i'm gonna stand up and slow clap for that zombie performance though he's david emge is awesome as a zombie yeah he really he really was 100 percent in like i don't know if it's if it's the like walking kind of on one foot i mean it's meant to be funny right yeah. like he's playing the revolver that's just like dangling off of his hand yeah i laugh at that every every single time i think it's so funny and even though david emge and scott Reiniger both get turned into zombies. Uh, in the original script, Ken Foray and Galen Ross also um, die at the end of the movie, and that's not the original theatrical release. But in the script, the original ending to this movie was so much darker, so much more bleak than what we see. Uh, they decided at the very end to go with a very up ending, and that was due to the assistant director, um, Chris Forrest or Chris Romero, George Romero's wife at the time, that was at her suggestion. And I, I, horror movies really weren't her thing, but she always believed in you know what George did. And this was one of one of the times that she said that George listened to her. She said, you know, this whole this whole time, this movie's so much fun and it's and it's an adventure, and you're ending on such a bleak notion. And that bleak notion being that Ken Foray shoots himself commits suicide as does galen ross and scott hers was originally scripted as putting her head in the um what do you call propeller no not propeller helicopter blades yeah was putting her head in the helicopter blades i mean i can't even imagine i i can't imagine seeing that but this ending was so much more bleak, but they decided to go with this up ending, which I think was a great decision. However, I totally think Tom Savini could have pulled off both of those uh, death scenes and made it, you know, made the impact of them that much more um, meaningful. Yeah, I, I wouldn't have minded a bleak ending because I feel like the ending's kind of open ended, you know, but I do I do like the fact 
that Ken Foray does, you know, he stops himself from like just you sacrificing himself. To. Yeah, you think he's going to sacrifice himself so that so that uh, the Francine character can get to the chopper, but then you know he fights his way out and they get away together. But it is open ended because you kn- you know that they don't have a lot of fuel left. So... Don't you love that part though? I love. Oh, that. I, well, he, I do too he's... because it's this sort of idea of like, well, they could just land at the next place and right. that could be riddled <laughs> with zombies as well. But it's very seventies in my mind because seventies movies did that. They they always had open ended endings, you know, where things were either bleak or left like unresolved, and it just kind of ended. And you're like, all right. I think in some ways it's unexpected for this to have as happy of an ending as you can have in a zombie apocalypse where it's, I don't, I don't know how any zombie movie is going to have a happy ending really because they, they all end with, well, it's still an apocalypse and there's zombies still roaming the earth, but at least the open endedness. And I mean, Francine's going to have a baby like this is, they, oh yeah. They yeah. they don't have a good outlook. There's a there's a lot that's just there resting in the to the imagination of how bleak things can get, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I there admittedly kind of part of me really wants to see what special effects master actor and stuntman Tom Savini would have done with a decapitation. Man, can we talk about for a second just a couple of maybe our favorite special effects moments? I there are so many. I mean, there there is. It's not a helicopter decapitation, but the top of a skull is taken off of one zombie, and it's I I'm never expecting it every time. I mean, I'm waiting for it, and when it happens, it's like, oh, dang, that was good. <laughs> I'm not a gore hound, but I, 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 I'm not like I don't turn away from a movie when I'm watching if it gets gory, um, unless it has to do with eyeballs. You can't do eyeballs. I can't do eyeballs, and like needles going in eyeballs, that kind of stuff. But for the most part, I'm not squeamish when I watch movies. But the eating of the intestines gets me a little, like Ugh. ripping intestines out, and like they're like maybe because I had a hernia once in my life, but there's just something about like intestines Oof. like bursting out while getting eaten that. I feel like that's the most like graphic part of the movie. And it is, this movie is surprisingly graphic. Like I kind of forget that, you know, and then you're watching and you're like, yeah, wow, this is, there's a lot of, you know, very gratuitous violence and like things being like torn apart that in some ways, you know, you can say this movie is a play on like how, you know, we as humans treat animals and like, you know, mm-hmm. after after things are dead, it's like there is no humane thing, you know, like, but we as humans, like we preserve the dead, you know, we have rituals of the dead and it's like the sacred thing. And this movie really takes that taboo of like being sacrilege with the dead and like, I mean, really like props it up front and center. And uh, <laughs> it's true. It, it can, you know, it can be off putting if you are one that uh, can't handle that kind of thing. Um, Chris Romero said that Tom Savini and and George Romero would often run something by her, and if she was really grossed out and disturbed, they would be like, "We're gonna go with it then." Yeah, <laughs> because because to her, there was so much in this movie that she just was like, "Oh my god, I can't believe we're doing this. This is just obscene. This is awful." But it, what makes it so? wonderful is that it's so believable and so grotesque and even though the blood um in this movie is so red and so vibrant and very unbelievable to me it makes it easier to stomach watching something that that does have a lot of gore in it 
Yeah. Um, because like Romero was trying to do, he was trying to make it this comic book kind of over the top, not Italian horror, even though Dario Argento was involved, but not like that over the top blood spatter or like redness of blood. But this idea of, of being somewhat unrealistic. And also, I mean, that's the blood color that they had to work yeah. with. It, it wasn't until like Day of the Dead that they got the secret. And and it's been said a million times anytime anyone's talking about Tom Savini, but, you know, he was a war photographer and used the things he saw, the the, the carnage that he saw and, and used that in his makeup work and was trying to create some of the things that he saw in real life that most people are lucky that they've never seen, you know, and he put that on camera. And that's why I think a lot of his effects, you know, he really made a name for himself because some of that stuff is pretty shocking. It just looks so real for the time. And people just hadn't really seen graphic violence in that way before, you know, that uh, just looks so like genuinely gross and real. I watched more than a couple interviews with Tom Savini talking about this, like being a combat photographer and after he would take these photos and look at them and he could distance himself from it. And granted he had a lot of PTSD after the fact, but he took it in and was able to take all of those awful experiences and really, I mean, do a complete 180. I mean, you're in, Granted, he was in the service. He was in Vietnam for like a whole, it was to support his family at the time. But he took that experience and turned it into like art, which is amazing to me and really showed that, um, you know, his talent went, uh, it was kind of always a jack of all trades, I think, like just through his family lineage, but his artistry and ability to create something on a very minimal or no budget or just working with what you have around you to make the most believable effects. Somehow he was able to do it. He was just a very resourceful and inventive dude who couldn't have been more excited um, at, at the prospect of creating something that was going to make George Romero jump out of his skin with like glee. Just someone who has so much knowledge and, and is such a team player that can kind of like help facilitate multiple aspects of, of production, especially dealing with the coordination of a stunt or with effects. And I mean, you really, we could really do like an entire podcast on, on Tom Savini. He's just had such yeah. an insanely successful career and has like put his mark on like so many movies of, of the horror genre. Definitely. And, and had been with, like, yeah, I could go into talking about he and George Romero, but they go way far back and continued their work on, even with the uh, 1990 remake of Night of the Living Dead that Tom Savini directed, he really wanted to make George proud, you know, with that one. It didn't end up being something that was exactly what he wanted it to be, but, you know, it was an admirable effort, I think. I don't know. That movie's not terrible. I think it's all right. Again, like I said, you could talk about Savini for like two hours, um, but we want to stay focused on Dawn of the Dead here. I just want to briefly say with the music, uh, this is a, a soundtrack that's been very popular with people for, for you know 40 years. It's kind of a crazy soundtrack, mainly done by the band Goblin, who have worked um, on a lot of uh, Dario Argento's films. And uh, Argento has appeared on some of their music as well as helping with some of the songs for 
the soundtrack and man it is bizarre I, I was listening to a few tracks earlier on spotify today and it's kind of crazy that this soundtrack is available on a thing like spotify like you put it on and you're just like you know you kind of like have to question like what am i listening to at first it's uh <laughs> It's very unsettling, but, you know, it works for a movie like this because you're dealing with a movie that people are trapped in, like, total chaos. And that's kind of how I would, like, describe their approach to to this music. Yeah, if you want to freak someone out, like, do a really slow drive-by in front of someone's house blasting this soundtrack. You might get the police called on you because it's surely you you are unsettled. Well, uh, talk quickly about the release of this movie. It was really a, a big hit internationally. It was a big hit in America. It has remained for 40 years to be one of, you know, the biggest cult classics of all time. Um, it's been called the definitive zombie movie. And it really made George Romero become like the, you know, the father of the zombie film. Like he's associated forever with zombie movies because of this movie you know because of its impact when it came out i mean this is a the horror you know you think we told we've talked about 70s horror before and where we were in in the horror genre and we were like at the early stages of the slasher genre and this was something that was just kind of totally different you know it was like totally different from all that stuff and really shook things up and kind of blew people away because they knew night of living dead and you know that was smaller and in black and white and felt very much more like a you know again like talking about like a drive-in movie and this one just seems so much bigger in scope and critically acclaimed just a great success story for a an independent film that was made for like you know a couple million dollars and although the mpaa did want to cut down a lot of of what was in the film to get it a solid r rating i mean this was at the time they were gunning for an x rating which was not going to get uh, people to go and see it. It was already decided that it was going to be, you know, restricted to people above 17. But the fact that Dario Argento had guaranteed them international distribution, Romero just kind of felt unrestricted. And so he just said, you know what, I'm just going to go with the cut that I want, the unrated version. Argento's going to go ahead and do 10 different, you know, international cuts of his own, fine, whatever. But I'm going to release what I, you know, what I intended here in the States. And in some ways, the satire aspect of the film kind of like greased the wheels a little bit and made it a little bit easier for um, some people to, some reviewers and, and folks to kind of stomach that along with it being grotesque, there was also this other element that didn't exactly, you know, make it any less disturbing to watch, but somehow made it a little bit easier of a pill to swallow. But, the you know, advertising was still limited in, in what they could show. Uh, sometimes in print ads, they couldn't really print anything except for if you want to know about this unrated movie, you have to call the theater. Um, and then there were some print ads where it was super vague, but they still did get butts in the seats and the reaction to the initial test screening, just people went bonkers. It was just unlike anything anyone had ever seen. And I'll say the, the Dawn of the Dead, the original poster is amongst, I think, one of my favorite movie posters. It's so gorgeous and, and kind of creepy and ominous and has such a killer tagline when there's no more room in hell the dead will walk the earth and how the 
titles like sprawled out, like coming at you in red. It just doesn't really give you a whole lot of information. It just like this could be a terrifying movie. We don't know. It's just like this ominous, terrifying image of a of a white face that doesn't really even look like a zombie. Um, yeah. <laughs> you know, or, or as like the zombies do in the movie. Um, but it, it's a poster that I had seen so many times and recognized so many times before I even seen this movie that had always like stuck out to me. And it's still amongst one of my favorite movie posters. Wasn't the, the zombie face that it was based on, like the, the zombie in the movie that it was based on was added in pretty much like after like they had already started and it wasn't even something that had been planned and ended up being that actor ended up being the, the yeah. cover of the movie. When I like to, that it's not, it's not necessarily like a a direct call to like a scene from the movie or something. Yeah, or it's it's, yeah. it's it's its own thing. It's very artful. It's very tasteful. And gives very much an apocalyptic end of the world type of feel. And Dawn of the Dead led to let's see four subsequent. Um, you could say sequels, or you could just say of the Dead continuation series after Dawn of the Dead. We had Day of the Dead, and I really enjoy Day of the Dead. I have to say the first four of the of the series, I love. I don't even know which one I love more, but between Night, Dawn, Day, and Land of the Dead, all four of those, man, I could talk on end about all of them, but they all are very distinct in difference in their evolution of the whole um, idea of Romero's idea of of directing and and writing the of the dead series I'm a huge fan of day of the dead I actually you know this might sound crazy but my favorite of all of Romero's zombie movies is land of the dead followed by day of the dead and then dawn of the dead would be my third favorite but to me land of the dead I liked that there was more to the zombies. Romero was someone I think that needed a bigger budget for some of these movies. And I feel like he got the budget that he deserved for land of the dead. And the scope of it is just so much more, you know, he was able to be more creative and get more crazy with the zombies and the special effects and the makeup, but not too crazy that I thought that that was the took away from characters or story either. And I really liked the characters in that movie as well, but I like that he's able to, continue on with these different zombie movies Mm -hmm. without uh, doing retreads. I will say I was unfamiliar with the last two Romero zombie movies, Diary of the Dead and Survival of the Dead. They, they didn't like hit me as much as like his, his last four movies did, you know, it felt like they were trying to be more modern and and play on more modern tropes and themes and modern horror movies. And it just didn't, it just felt like it was trying hard to be, of the times versus like being original, like his other movies were. I think that the evolutionary aspect still existed within those. And he did, you know, he did write them and play off of what he had done before. Uh, But I would agree with you that, yeah, after land, I like diary. There's one scene that involves a, a pool and some zombies. I really like that scene. Zombies in water. I generally really like, but I liked diary. All right. Survival, was fine, but it, it didn't feel like it had the same magic that the that the ones previously did. I do for some reason I love that he still continued to make them though. I, I'm still gonna watch them and not in just a completist way. I think it was just the idea um you know that George Romero, even though he started out after night not wanting to be 
the godfather of, of zombies. Um, that's what he, you know, was. And I think he grew to embrace that. You got five subsequent sequels after your movie in 1968. That's pretty cool. I think the fact that Day of the Dead and Land of the Dead are so good are a testament to him being such a good director and writer and creator. But it's hard to, you know, you make some of the best, most well-known zombie movies of the time. It's hard at the end of your career to say, you know, how do I top that? Especially with smaller budgets, I think, that he was given for his the latter films. You know, I don't think I threw my head into the ring here, Justin, but I agree with you. Land of the Dead's my favorite, and then Day of the Dead. I know that might sound blasphemous to some listeners right now, but I'm being 100% honest, and this is coming from someone, and, and I'm talking about right now in my life. <laughs> I just watched all six of these movies in the last two weeks, and I can verify with 100% accuracy. With all of these, though, there might be different situations that I would want to, like, if I was having, if I was in high school and having a slumber party, I would put in Dawn of the Dead more so than any of them. If I was going to a drive-in, I would rather watch Night of the Living Dead. If I'm at home, I'm probably going to put on Land of the Dead. There are all of these aspects of them that I appreciate. I'd rewatch. I need to rewatch Diary of the Dead. It's been a second, but I remember it. I remember it pretty well. But I've got. I got. I bought it at uh, V Stock for five dollars, so you can you can take it next time. I'll buy it. it. I'll buy it off you. I'll consider that a verbal contract. Well, now with uh, Dawn of the Dead being so great and all these other great Romero zombie movies that we had available to us, there didn't really seem to be a need or necessity to have a remake of Dawn of the Dead. But in 2004, Zack Snyder did just that. It was more of a reimagining, if you will, um, sort of similar to what Rob Zombie did with Halloween, except for Zack Snyder kept the story and the characters and the location um, much more similar to how the original Dawn of the Dead was, except for he added a lot more of his own style, tone, and humor. But I'll tell you, was it warranted to have a remake of Dawn of the Dead? Not really. Did I enjoy the hell out of it? Oh my God. You know, because we were doing all this, I was like, oh yeah, I never did see that remake. And I just assumed that it was awful. And I turned it on and I don't know, man. I (laughs) I really, really loved it. I mean, I thought it was super scary. The first 20 minutes were so intense. And I love that it just was kind of rip-roaring. Like, there was no setup or anything. It was just like, boom, within like five minutes. It's like mass chaos. And it felt very chaotic. Like, it was an unrelenting movie. I think it lost its edge, you know, as it went on because it was trying to mix so much humor with horror. But... I really, really liked it. And I mean, it's a movie I think that I would definitely watch again. And I definitely liked it a lot more than the last two Romero zombie movies. You know, please don't write me hate mail for that. (laughs) Um, I went to see this in the theater. And as someone who's always really loved George Romero and went into it being like, man, this is going to suck. I know it. it left being like, damn, my ass just got blown away. And it had been quite a few years since I'd seen it. And I popped it in uh, this this last time and was making some graphics for the podcast. And within like the first three minutes, I just like had to put down my iPad and was like, I can't do anything because I I'm completely engaged in like this first half. This is intense and crazy and a whole different feel than the original uh, Dawn of the Dead, but 
I mean, great. That's awesome. It's 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 a remake. It should be. I want it to be a different feel. There also was a, a remake of Day of the Dead, trying to play upon the success, I think, of, of Dawn of the Dead. I don't know if it necessarily achieved that, but why not? I'm still going to watch the original Day of the Dead, I think, over the yeah. remake. It's been a wild ride for me doing this because I've honestly never been one who's very, really been into zombie movies. It's a genre, I mean, I've always loved horror movies, but zomb, the zombie genre is one that wasn't one of my favorites. And so I was apprehensive at first when we, you know, first decided to do this movie because I wanted to go all in and, you know, watch all of the Romero zombie movies and watch other zombie movies. And I feel like I've changed a little bit. I've really grown to like like this genre quite a bit. Some of the other stuff that I've seen, you know, the TV show Walking Dead and other zombie movies where they're more modern, I do think they don't quite have the grit and the the intelligence of, of his original uh, early creations. Now, Greg Nicotero, who does do The Walking Dead, who has been involved with Romero for for quite a few years, and I think it took over for Tom Savini after he stopped doing effects for Romero. But yes, the, the evolution of the zombie has has been something that it has been ever changing and George A Romero is the dude who is the reason that it has it has always been ever evolving and I think if you want to really get a good idea of why the genre is so well loved you're going to have to watch Romero movies. If you haven't before if you've seen just one off zombie movies and it's not really your bag or something else there's there's something deeper. There's a there's a deeper level to his movies on top of the fact that they're just visually impressive. You leave them not only sometimes feeling scared, um, sometimes grossed out, but usually there's just more to the story than you ever expect. Totally. Well, let's stop there on Romero. We'll come back for some final thoughts at the end of the episode, but let's move into our picks of the week. Um, Lindsay, you know, I stayed on the Romero tip, but you went a slightly different direction with your beloved movie, Children (laughs) Shouldn't Play With Dead Things. What can you tell me about that movie? Well, first, I'm just going to say finally, I'm finally doing the movie that has always felt like my private, low budget zombie horror movie that no one else has ever seen. I am, of course, very wrong, and there is a cult horror hound underground who know this movie quite well. I thought when I discovered this movie 20 years ago for 50 cents on VHS that I had discovered gold just by the cover art. But this 1972 zombie horror, pretty sure half comedy, has always been an invaluable addition to the movie cove that is my life. I love it first and foremost for being completely bizarre. It centers around a theater troupe whose leader or director, owner of sorts, a guy who has a huge superiority complex. He's taking um, some of his main actors out to an island, which has a cemetery, a couple streetlights, and a caretaker's cottage. I know I said this was a zombie comedy, but it's not like a knee slapper. Not like what you think of, you know, a comedy comedy today. My all-time favorite zombie comedy, My Boyfriend's Back, which I've talked about before, is an overt, very obvious metaphorical dark comedy. 
The comedic element here involves sarcastic, quippy, judgmental dialogue, usually trading jabs between the narcissistic leader and the others who clearly do not like him at all. The comedy is really only present with this gang for the first two-thirds of the movie, before they realize that corpses are rising from their graves. Up until that point, we're following an egocentric a-hole who's trying to scare the actors in his company. First, he tries so by having two so very obviously gay actors playing ghouls in the cemetery, trying to terrify the crew he brought with him, and then trying to enact this bizarre seance of using a very real, recently dead corpse, trying to bring that back to life. And that corpse we come to know as Orville, and Orville has his revenge. I should say that I'm always a sucker for a Scooby-Doo situation, and the visual representation of the characters in Children Shouldn't Play With Dead Things is very Scooby-Doo-like. But don't get it twisted, there's not like a mystery here. It's only the visual comparisons which are undeniable. As half of the group tires of the leader's antics and his desire to bring Orville back to the caretaker's cottage for something so random and bizarre, I'm not even going to ruin it, this group of six continue to further indulge their master. As Alan, the leader of the group, bullies the others into going along with his dishonorable plans for Orville through music and an eerie sense of foreboding that has been following us all throughout the movie, we begin to understand that something isn't right. The group might have thought that their seance to raise the dead didn't work, but boy were they dead wrong. If you do decide to seek out this movie, I ask you to remember the state of low-budget special effects. Now, George Romero got away with a lot on the cheap by doing Night of the Living Dead in black and white. Children Shouldn't Play With Dead Things is in full color and the makeup is grotesque, but in a way that it's chunky, falling off actors' faces, and though I would never say that it's you know, quote, bad. It was just made 50 years ago on a nothing budget. The effects are admirable, and I love this kind of thing, even when the makeup's falling off of actors' faces. It's also a weird feeling to go from laughing about something in one scene to, to being completely terrified in the next. If zombies make you feel queasy like they do me, this one's gonna be fun for you. And the music is completely responsible for the off-kilter atmosphere. It's daunting, very creepy, there's no humor or sense of something positive in the film score. It's only dread ahead for the Scooby gang if we just are listening to the soundtrack. Something else I've always loved about this movie is that it was directed, co-produced, and co-written by Bob Clark, who's credited as Benjamin Clark in the film, who directed A Christmas Story, Porky's, and his most revered film, 1974's Black Christmas. Many people who worked on the film were college friends of Clark's, including Alan Ormsby, who also plays the jerky theater troupe leader and co-wrote the film. I'm not going to spoil the rest of the movie because once zombies descend upon the cottage, we can assume it's going to be zombie rules as we know them. And before Romero changed the game with everything post Night of the Living Dead, I'm going to state it right now. This movie brought up the ludicrous idea of zombies having the ability for a tiny bit of thought even if we just see it for a moment. But it's that moment when an entire theater of moviegoers going to see this movie would stand up and totally cheer. I highly recommend the special edition DVD of Children Shouldn't Play With Dead Things. There's not a good way to get an amazing transfer of this film, but it's better than VHS quality. And getting to go behind the scenes of the making of the film, just like a little bit in some interviews, you get a sense of how much love went into making it. I love that I get to share my appreciation uh, for this film with everyone that's listening because I know 
those horror-loving friends closest to me. Like I said, they all know my undying love for this movie, but will any of them watch it with me? That's a whole other story. I mean, I don't know. I don't know if it's the cover that puts them off, that it's silly, but really tastefully done. Or you just go into starting the first 10 minutes and you're like, what is this trash I'm watching? But I assure you, stick with it. If you like culty B-horror movies with a twinge of comedy, Children Shouldn't Play With Dead Things is among one of the very best. And I am so proud to own two copies of it. It's always so wild to me to think of the career of Bob Clark between <laughs> I know, right? Children shouldn't play with dead things, uh <laughs> Christmas story and Porkies. It's just like you know, and then you throw on Black Christmas, it's just like wild. What yeah. a what a strange mix of movies. Very much so. Very, very much so. Well maybe I can convince you to watch it with me sometime. I don't know. I'm down. If we ever get to hang out again. I know. Pandemic times, right? More like blandemic times. Oh, it's so true. Tell me about the dark half. I mean, I did just recently watch it, but I would love to have you tell me about it. The dark half is, uh, I think, considered to be a part of this career in Romero where he was making studio pictures. You know, he was mainly an independent filmmaker. He made his movies on his own terms. They were distributed uh, wildly by studios, but when he was actually making them, you know, he wasn't getting studio funding. The Dark Half and Monkey Shines were his moment where he was backed by a big studio with bigger budgets. And, you know, it could be argued that he did better off as an in- independent filmmaker versus having studio backing. I know he clashed with the studio quite a bit, but The Dark Half, you know, with a bigger budget, it lends to a, a slicker Romero. You know, The Dark Half is. Uh, also, Romero adapting someone else's work. Um, it's him working with Stephen King again after their collaboration on Creepshow. And Stephen King wrote the novel, The Dark Half. Romero adapted the screenplay. And it's a very effective, creepy movie. I don't believe it makes a whole lot of sense toward the end. You know, you really have to kind of suspend disbelief. But the overall storyline is enticing. Romero was again able to shoot near Pittsburgh in his hometown and it's about this writer played by Timothy Hutton who in the opening of the film quite a creepy opening he's a kid he's uh you know learning the write he's becoming interested in writing wants to be a writer but he keeps getting these headaches and you know in the first five minutes you know we find out that he's got some sort of brain tumor but when they open up his when the doctors open up his brain and in surgery, they see that there's an eyeball and he has like some sort of fraternal twin that was like attached to his brain, cut to present time, which is, you know, 1990, I think, in the movie. And he's become a successful writer by writing these sort of exploitation type books where there's a guy, he's like a tough character and it's sort of a gumshoe type stories. And he writes that under like a different name because he is also writing books that are no one, they're not really, they're critically acclaimed, but they're not popular with audiences like his other books are. And this is a total Stephen King type thing, you know, that he's explored in many of his other books in, in adaptable movies. But uh, Romero handles the material really, really well. It's very intriguing. It starts out uh, you know, you're interested in the character Timothy Hutton. So, so Timothy Hutton is so great in it. Um, his wife, played by Amy Madigan from Uncle Buck fame. Timothy Hutton is a teacher. You know, he's teaching English at a college, and he 
ends up getting framed by someone who finds out that he's been writing under an alias. And so he decides it's time to bury that alias. He's going to go on and write the the non-exploitation books that he's wanted to write. But in doing that, it sort of create the character that he wrote in the book sort of comes to life and starts killing all the people he knows. And so he tries to get help from a cop that he sort of knows a little bit, has a relationship with, uh, played by Michael Rooker, doing what Michael Rooker does best, playing sort of like a hard-nosed type character who, you know, is, is a little judgy, but is also uh, willing to help you out and listen to you at the same time. And <laughs> he just does it so well. He does. He does. From here, the movie, you know, I don't I don't think it ever gets bad, but it kind of gets a little shaky, you know, because it kind of turns into the slasher movie for a while, while this alternate character from his book is going around killing everybody he knows. And because the people that he's killing, you only saw for a brief moment in the beginning of the movie, like this guy's book editor and the person that works with him at the distribution house. You're like, wait, who are these people? Or at least I was anyway. I was like, wait, who are these people that he's killing? And it starts happening really fast and kind of comes down to like a, a fight between Timothy Hutton and his alter ego kind of dips into territory that, you know, we've seen in a lot of horror movies where a horror movie starts out strong and things kind of get convoluted and the ending isn't very satisfying. I won't spoil it. <laughs> Not that I'd be able to explain it very well of like what actually took place um, in this small amount of time that I get for our pick of the week section. But I think it's definitely worth the watch. I think that there is a lot of Romero in this movie. And I think it's kind of an underrated Romero movie. And the sad thing about this movie is, is it, it was made by Ryan Pitchers, which eventually went bust in the early 90s. And the movie was supposed to come out in 1990, but because the studio was in so much turmoil, the movie Dark Half got shelved and didn't come out till 1993. And we kind of talked about this in one of our early, early episodes about Stephen King and how right around the early 90s, like 93, 94, horror movies kind of shifted a little bit and people were getting a little bit burnt out on the last decade they had of Stephen King adaptations and I think this movie came right on too far on the tail end of that of people like kind of being burned out and didn't do well at the box office was kind of underseen but I think this is a really good movie to check out and it really is a great uh, Halloween October movie to watch. It, there's some a lot of good creepy atmosphere that Romero is known for, as well as some uh, really really good performances. I had a lot of, of fun watching this one, and it wasn't the easiest one to track down, but I was able to find it on Prime. I really enjoyed watching this, and admittedly, it was the first time that I had. And you're right, there's a lot of Romero in this, and I found myself doing some digging on it, and. Uh, finding out that it, a little bit about what Stephen King was going through when he was writing it, dealing with his own yeah. like addiction issues. Um, but yeah, this was a great movie. Well, those are our picks of the week. Children Shouldn't Play With Dead Things and The Dark Half. Two very uh, creepy-sounding titles. I like that. I'm glad that <laughs> yeah. we're ending our picks of the week for October off with these two titles. <laughs> but let's, uh, let's move into something a little bit different. Here's your Murray moment. Because I rarely wear underwear, and when I do, it's usually something unusual. I think I need a root canal. I'm sure I need a long, slow root canal. You're gonna come and shake my monkey tree again? Oh, what does that old queen know? 
she didn't even chill. Okay, this is so structured. Is this hand shot? The flowing robes, the grace, all striking. That was fun. And Justin, try not to hate me um, for the Murray moment that I'm about to do. Okay. Um, I know it's been a while since I've done a on the nose Murray moment, but I really couldn't pass up this opportunity. Like zombies, ghouls, Romero. I mean, this subject matter, I just had to take us to the Jim Jarmusch movie, The Dead Don't Die from 2019. I had a feeling you were going in this direction. And I know my, I know you know my disdain for that movie, even though I love Jarmusch. I know. And I've I've been going off the rails for so many episodes now that I just was like, you know what? I'm going I'm uh, I'm going to take us down this road, but you don't know what I'm going to say. So, there's that. Now, if you out there have seen this and Justin, I don't know if you've noticed this, but there are a few shout-outs to Romero's Night of the Living Dead in this. You know, for one, it's in Pennsylvania. Uh, the short beginning in the cemetery of the movie. Um, there's also the 68 Pontiac Lamont we see in the film. Teens cruising through the town. You know, even directly reference the movie. Romero's influence is all over this, and Jarmusch readily admits that. Now, uh, Jim was the writer-director, and in his quest to nab Billy for the lead role, um, he went to see Bill, Jan Vogler, and friends perform at Carnegie Hall. He playfully told Billy that he's just been trying to track him down, and he has the perfect film for him. Bill read it, enjoyed the story, and once he found out that Adam Driver was involved, he was a fan of Driver in Jarmusch's movie Patterson. He became even more stoked about the idea of being in it. Bill and Adam did riff some lines here and there with some scenes while Chloe Seveny played the more straightforward role, but for the most part, the actors stuck to the script. It was surprising to Seveny, though, how much Jarmusch uh, didn't really have anything storyboarded, only planned out shots, which is pretty atypical uh, for any major production, but it's also very Romero, kind of going back to that whole idea of being influenced by George Romero. But Seveny had worked with Jarmusch and Billy before on Broken Flowers. It's a film that's close to my heart. Um, so the scene was kind of familiar. And Tilda Swinton is also in this movie. She was a friend of Billy's and such a creative creature herself. It's a Im- really impressive group of actors, Bill said of the cast. And Carol Kane, I thought she was dead. Turns out she's very undead in the film. You Murray fans out there may remember Carol Kane as the ghost of Christmas Present and Scrooge, who share some specifically memorable scenes with Billy. You would think that Bill Murray's a big improviser, but Bill likes me to be his audience, Jarmusch said of their times working together. And he has a really wide range, and he likes me to just kind of close it in for him, though. He'll improvise and come up with things, but it's not a wild approach on his part. He's a really controllable actor. He's very subtle and remarkable in that way. Jarmusch continued to say in his interview with Melina Resnick of the New York Times that Billy's acting style is one thing, but the man's not controllable in real life, and any effort like that would just be futile. And while immensely appreciative, he really feels lucky to have Bill's admiration and to have worked on so many films with him. Even during filming The Dead Don't Die, every Saturday when Jarmusch wasn't working and feeling drained from long hours, Bill would call him just to check in and see how Jim was holding up. Every week they'd talk for an hour or so on the phone just because Bill was concerned for his friend. 
Jarmusch even got walking pneumonia at one point during filming, but just kept on shooting. He's been very kind to me, protective at times. He's been very generous, and not just to me, but to all people he cares about. So just as a person, I value knowing him, Jarmusch said of Bill. Now, I'm not just going to end this whole moment on just talking about how great Bill Murray is. So how about a pretty fun story? It was raining. And we were waiting for the rain to pass. It was a New England summer storm situation, Seventy told one interviewer. And we were just sitting in a cop car and Bill said, you guys want to go for a ride? Jarmusch said that they must have been moving a camera or changing a set, something that took some time. And Bill just decided to take Seventy and driver for a joyride in the cop car. No one told any PAs, no producers on set. No one knew what was going to happen. The trio just pulled out. And according to Seventy, Bill said after taking off, Adam, do you have a phone? Chloe, do you have a phone? Adam, do you have any money? Chloe, do you have any money? All answers were no. We're in a car with no money, no phones, no gas. And he said, I remember this farm stand I went to a couple days ago. So we pulled over to this farm stand with the cop lights going. Jarmusch recounted the tale that he was told. They rolled up to some farm stand and jumped out and the people were just alarmed. They noticed it was Bill, but they never recognized Chloe or Adam. And then Bill was like, hey, you mind if we take some fruit and stuff and we'll pay you back later? We're good for it. And they were like, okay. And so he brought some stuff back for the crew. You know, Bill does things like that. Now keep in mind, they were on a tight schedule, and they might have been dressed as cops, but they also had real... Real-looking guns on them. Pretty safe to assume that someone might have been furious about this timeout that the trio took, but hey, they brought back fruit and muffins. Come on, it's not so bad. Driver told the New York Times that after being gone for about an hour, that we miraculously made our way back to where we were shooting. And I feel like everyone was just like, let's just pretend that didn't happen. That's just typical Bill Murray, Jarmusch continued. We can be shooting, and he'll walk into someone's house that you have nothing to do with and come out a half an hour later with a plate of cookies, and you'll say, Bill, what the hell did you do? Eh, I just went in there. Yeah, but what did you do? Well, everyone was eating breakfast, and they said, hey, you're Bill Murray, and look, they gave me this plate of cookies for the crew. If you follow these Murray moments, you know this isn't the first time that Billy has been making sure that everyone has been taken care of and fed. My dive into Billy's involvement in the Dead Don't Die certainly gave me a fresh appreciation for the film. But can you imagine being those folks who were running the farm stand nearby? Apparently, Bill had been there many times before, so they were completely unfazed when he rolled up again. That story was pretty cute, I thought, and such a uh, it-just-doesn't-matter type of Bill Murray story. I like the short, cute little Bill Murray stories. I like that you pepper them in throughout the the episodes stay tuned for my next murray moment that'll be 25 minutes long yeah, don't worry yeah. well thank you for that murray moment of course as always well we should wrap up this episode wrap up october wrap up all these horror movies do you have any final thoughts on romero or dawn of the dead before we close out this month other than i could talk about tom savini for hours i think i really appreciate his work uh galen ross who was uh franny this was her first film she hadn't acted before and she was really concerned about you know being believable in this film and ended up taking some uh, acting classes during filming anyway i think that they paid off 
I really like Franny in this movie, and I really like that she uh, was this strong female character in such a epic horror movie. Before we even really started to see that, whether it's, oh gosh, Alien. It's probably like one of the first where we see like a strong female role. And even with Ripley, you know, she just kind of happened into that role. With Galen Ross's character, she was just kind of always like that. I mean, I guess Ripley was always like that too, but this was before Alien and she was like, hey, Romero, I'm not going to be the damsel in distress. I'm not going to be Barbara from Night of the Living Dead. Okay, that's it. I like that. It's interesting that that's not talked about more with her character, but I also like the fact that Romero listened as he seemed to do when people were giving him suggestions. I got to say that's one of one of the things above. So, I mean, I love so many of his movies, but that he is so often described as a big teddy bear. <laughs> and, you know, I'm sure we, we don't know the facet of it, you know, you and I haven't been married to him. You know, we don't know the man intimately. Before. What a real bastard he is, you know, <laughs> behind behind closed doors. But yeah, yeah, but, but he really seemed to put so much care and thought and appreciated the people he worked with. And I, I got to say, I have mad love and always have for George Romero. And I am very proud to say that My Living Dead was the first movie I ever saw or I ever remember seeing even before a Bill Murray movie even though it was round about the same age it was like three I think was when um I remember seeing Night of Li- it was like Night of the Living Dead Fatal Attraction and Ghostbusters wow I know those are all movies only one of those is acceptable if I think for a three-year-old and maybe not even that I don't know but I have to say, I, I remember the the moment uh, when I when I saw the Night of the Living Dead. It was in Ohio. I was sitting on my cousin's knee, and I tried to pretend like I wasn't scared. But I really just talk like this. I was like, I said, I'm not scared. I'm not scared at all. It's fine. <laughs> I was terrified. All right, your turn. What's your final thought? Uh, my final thought is uh, when I was digging around doing research for Dawn of the Dead and Romero, I stumbled across... Uh, an article about a lost film by Romero from 1973 that supposedly as of uh, as recent as June is being worked up and getting some sort of theatrical release or at least released on digital format. And it sounds like it's right up Romero's alley. I mean, he made him, he was commissioned by the Lutheran society that wanted him to create a film to raise awareness about ageism and elder abuse and supposedly a few people who have seen this movie called it very terrifying. One person wrote, uh, The Amusement Park by George Romero stars Lincoln Mazell as an elderly man who finds himself disoriented and increasingly isolated as the pains, tragedies, and humiliations of aging in America are manifested through roller coasters and chaotic crowds. It just sounds terrifying. And people have said that America is not ready for this type of social horror commentary movie by Romero. So my interests are piqued. I'll be uh, keeping an eye out for it, but if anybody hears anything new on it, send us an email, please. Uh, the, the Amusement Park by Romero, the lost film. I totally want to see this. Admittedly, the first thing that comes to mind is Carnival of Souls, 
And yeah, I just I I'm, I'm sure it has nothing to do with that, but that's the first thing that, that that comes to mind. And of course, any biting commentary. I mean, when this was supposedly made in '74-ish or something yeah, like that. Yeah, '73, '74. And man, R.I.P. George Romero. We really lost somebody so special and so important to the horror genre, zombies, just movies in general. We really did. And thank you to everyone for. Uh, sticking with us through this episode, Celebration of Dawn of the Dead, the zombie movie uh, considered by so many, and for sticking with us through all of these Halloween episodes. I mean, starting off with Exorcist 3 to Ginger Snaps to now like one of the biggest horror movies ever made. Uh, really, I, I love that we keep it, you know, eclectic. Yeah, I mean, I, I love that we do all these other movies, but I love when we can kind of let loose and get into the horror movies but i know that they're not for everybody and and that's okay you know so if you if you had to take if you had to tap out for october um have no fear the rest of the year here we're moving into different genres starting in november with the movie election by alexander payne which we you know we thought would be fitting um, considering there is a you know semi-big election coming up here uh, just around the corner. So that'll be next episode, and can't wait to tackle that one. If you like what you hear, um, please follow us on social media, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, YouTube. We're there. If you'd like to hear old episodes, you can always find them at our website at don'tpushpausepodcast.com. We have an archive there of all our episodes going all the way back to episode zero we also have a merch store there that has tons of merchandise that has our logo on it as well as things that we find on the street movie posters uh memorabilia anything that we can slap a price tag on and sell on the website (laughs) so that we can make money to produce a bigger and better podcast every penny helps us out and uh if you want to reach us for any reason please do Uh, For any tips, uh, movies you like, uh, movies you hope we might talk about in the future, you can contact us at don'tpushpausepodcast at gmail.com. Until next time, I'm Justin Johnson. And I'm Lindsay Reber. Have a happy Halloween, guys. Yeah, have fun. Be safe.